This is When Everything is Missions, the podcast hosted by Matthew Ellison and Denny Spitters. Missions is not something that just kind of popped up after Pentecost. It is actually the warp and woof of all of the scriptures, and we need to see the Bible through that lens. On today's episode, co-founder and leader of the Live Dead Movement, Dr. Dick Brogdon, joins us to discuss what it looks like to really bring the gospel to all nations. Let's get to it. Well, greetings and welcome to another episode of the When Everything is Missions podcast. I am Matthew Ellison, and as always, I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Denny Spitters. Denny, it's great to be with you. Yeah, it's good to be uh, together, even by a distance in the time of uh, COVID world and all the other chaos that's happening. I'm really looking to our time together today. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we normally do this in studio, um, but the last couple times we've done it, we've had to do it virtually, and it's not the same as seeing you face-to-face, brother, but I'll take it. Yep, yep, definitely so. Well, Danny, we have some exciting news. Uh, our, our listeners probably don't know this yet. Uh, maybe this will be the first time they've heard it, but we have a brand new book coming out. It's a companion book to our first book. Why, why don't you let listeners know a little bit about the book? Yes, it's called Conversations on When Everything is Missions. And basically, we have compiled chapters from people that have been um, strong influencers and um, those that have helped us understand not not only the definition of missions, but the engagement of what we call missiology, which sounds really complicated, but is simply uh, the theology of missions, how missions is done, and what the Bible really has to say about God and his mission. So uh, we're really excited about it. There's 14 chapters, I think, right now uh, from 14 different um, authors, so to speak. And uh, we got the privilege of being able to edit it. And I am thrilled that we're going to be able to have uh, our guest today, Dick Brogdon. And um, I first heard Dick at, um, Dick, I'm going to say that it was maybe uh, Missio Nexus in 2017 or 18. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And afterwards, I I, I was stunned being able to sit through your message and really be incredibly um blessed and at the same time challenged to think about God's master plan of um, you know missions to the whole world and you did such a an incredibly um passionate job of it but straightforward and uh, that's I think when I came up to you afterwards and said uh, hey I, I I'd love to have your feedback on this book and that's how we got kicked off well, I was so glad for that day, and I just want to put a plug in for that book. I have bought hundreds of copies and spread it around liberally. It's wonderful. You guys did a great job. Oh, well, you, you've been such a blessing. You you literally have bought hundreds and yeah. given sure a lot of those, and we're we're thrilled to be able to partner with you today. Yeah. Well, Dick, your chapter is called This Gospel All Nations, and I love how you, be, you begin the chapter by clearly revealing the sovereign God of the Bible as a missionary God that uses his people. Uh, he chooses and uses history to bring about this master plan that we're just talking about. You call it the tri 
patrite formula. Did I get that right? <laughs> right, partite, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Need some more coffee this morning. It's early where I'm at. Uh, that sounds complicated. Can you explain in terms that everyday followers of Jesus will understand what is that formula and why is it important for us to see it in the scriptures, Dick? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually not unique to me. Walter Kaiser, the great Old Testament scholar, came up with it. And it's basically based on Genesis 12. So three-part formula, tripartite, three parts. Number one, God says, I will bless you when he's talking to Abraham. Part number two, you will be a blessing. Part number three, in you, all the peoples of the earth, all the ethne of earth will be blessed. So God is essentially saying this to Abraham and through Abraham to us. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Part one. Number two, I am going to bless you and make you a blessing. And number three, that blessing is not just to your cousins or your tribe or your nation. That blessing ultimately through Jesus is going to be to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And why it's so important, the second part of your question, to understand is that this formula is the organizing theme of the scriptures. Think of it like a desktop icon on your computer. When you click on that icon, that I will bless you with my presence, you will be a blessing, and through you all the peoples of earth will be blessed, that icon click opens up all of the Bible. And it keeps us from self-absorption and nationalism and cultural blindness and despair. And it gives us hope. It's so important because it shows us God's very heart. And that missions is not something that just kind of popped up after Pentecost. It is actually the warp and woof of all of the scriptures. And we need to see the Bible through that lens. Therefore, David and Goliath. Why did that happen? Well, David gives us the answer within this formula that all the world may know there is a God in Israel, you know, yeah. or Isaiah and his prophecy when he says the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. So we're looking in the historical books. We're looking in the prophetic books. We see it in the Psalms and then all through the New Testament. Here is that, that very simple promise of God. I'm going to bless you, my presence. You'll be a blessing to all the nations on earth. It is the organizing theme of the scriptures. Well, it sounds like you're claiming, Dick, that that the uh, the Bible is basically a, a missions book. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and I'm claiming even further that God's a missionary God. We serve a missionary God, and he's given us a missionary book. Great. Wow, that's th and it, that is so revolutionary for people to, I think, understand, because often we just see the Bible as, you know, a collection of stories or a how to manual for living my life and getting the most out of life. Uh, this is a far bigger picture. And you anchor your chapter in Matthew 24, 14 here. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And to a statement actually about the goal of missions, and I'm going to quote one of your lines here, quote, ultimately, God in sovereign celebration lets us know how it all ends. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus, unquote. 
How does this prophetic statement out of Revelation, I believe, uh, of our Lord actually motivate you? How does Matthew 24, 14 um, keep you moving forward? And how should it motivate us as disciples in the local churches of North America? Great question. Essentially, it's this. It gives us the goal, the guarantee, and the primary means. What we see in this text is that the goal is disciples gathered together in churches. And how do we extrapolate that out? We know that the gospel has to go forth by preaching, which is the means given to us. And we understand that the end goal is worship. So we're going to have these little clusters of people together. They might be a group of three in Saudi Arabia. It might be a group of 3,000 or in Orlando. But gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ, through the means of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, we exist to give God worship and glory. So this is the goal in the temporary spheres, but also in all of eternity. And what's so exciting to me is that the Lord gives us this goal. This is what we need to push for before the end comes. And then implicit in that is a guarantee. We have it guaranteed that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be there in heaven. And we're told we don't get to go to heaven until that happens. And so there it is. That's our goal. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, and it's not going to be fruitless. There is this promise that they will be assembled in heaven. That gives me incredible motivation in a place like Saudi Arabia, where I live. I know that in God's sovereignty, he has called men and women to himself, and there's a guarantee there's going to be Saudis in heaven. So I don't live a frustrated life. I have this hope of fruitfulness. I just got to go find them. God has put them out there somewhere within my orbit. I'm just going to go find them. And the second part of that is the primary means. That verse says uh, that preaching is integral to this. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached. So we look at the scriptures and I see, okay, my goal is Saudis, those from every nation around the throne. My guarantee is there in the Bible that's going to happen. And my methodology primarily is to preach, which means to evangelize, proclaim, and make disciples. When we look at the scriptures, we see very clearly in the Gospels and in Acts over and over again, four primary verbs. Preaching, which I believe is primary and the text supports that. Teaching, healing, and praying. These are non-negotiable. They're universal. What is optional are some particulars, which might vary according to your personality or specific context. It might be education or a gym or health or ecology, whatever. Those things are just the means towards the great end of disciples made from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. And there is this priority on proclaiming the gospel. It is undeniable in this text. It's undeniable in the scriptures. So to answer your question, how does it motivate the church? It gives us our goal. It gives us our guarantee. And it gives us our primary means. The goal is the worship of every tribe and tongue. We're guaranteed to see that. And we're told to evangelize, to preach, to make disciples and bring them together in worshiping communities, which are a foretaste of that beautiful heavenly glory. I think I love you talking about the guarantee that, you know, this is the imminent completion of history's greatest movement. I'm sharing a devotion later tonight with the church, and I'm going to talk about Adoniram Judson, pioneer missionary to Burma. 
um, in the 1800s, and he has a famous quote. You may have heard it before. He used to say, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And the first time he said yeah. that, he was in prison, and um, he was being tortured in extreme ways, taunted, in fact, by his captors, and they had confiscated his Bible translation work of many years. And one of the captors said something to the effect of, what do you think of your future in Burma now? And his response was, it's as bright as the promises of God, because he held on to this promise of a future guarantee. I really appreciate that. Dick, you, you write about the tension between the needs of lost people on our own world versus the needs of the 42% of the world without gospel access, whom you call the unreached. But the assertion of this Matthew 24, 14 text that Denny mentioned is not that the here is neglected, but that the there, all the rest of the world, is at a disadvantage. We cannot join our voice to the swelling ranks of those who twist this passage and others to devote primary attention to the needs at home. That's right from your book, your chapter. This sounds a little bit like a slap in the face to believers and leaders of churches in North America. Are you simply an angry, frustrated missionary who feels neglected? How have we twisted and misunderstood it? All right, that's a great question. Let me first dissect the premise of the question in the sense that, no, not frustrated at all. But angry? Maybe a little bit, but I hope by God's grace, it's kind of a Jesus cleansing the temple kind of anger. You know, even in that story, Jesus gets so upset. He quotes Isaiah 56, and he's so upset there's no place for the nations. He's throwing tables over, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So I hope what comes across in the book is not a frustration or destructive anger, but just a zeal for God's house and an understanding that Jesus always intended that within his family, in his house of prayer, there would be every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. But here is how I think that we have kind of twisted it. Back in 1981, Richard Foster, who wasn't really a missiologist, he writes on devotional thought, he pointed out that USA is 6% of the global population, consuming 33% of the world's resources. It's disproportionate. The problem is not one of supply. The problem is distribution. And there is so much gospel access in places like America or South Korea or Nigeria in the South, for example. And there are other places on the world that just don't have the same distribution. And so it was never intended by the Lord for us to get every one of our family members saved before we cross the street to our neighbor. It was never intended by our Lord to get every single person in America saved and then head to Afghanistan. The language and the ethos of the Great Commission, when Jesus is talking even about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth, it is not sequential. In fact, this double argument can be made. It is that it is meant to be all of those places at the same time. And in fact, if we look a little layer deeper, because a lot of times we interpret it, start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea because Jerusalem's your home. So take care of your home first and then from that base reach out. Well, the little fly in that hermeneutical ointment is that none of the disciples were from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee, and Jerusalem was where their Lord had been persecuted. It was dangerous. It's where they were hunted. And so even in that text, 
when Jesus is saying Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, he didn't actually mention home. He mentioned a hostile place far from home. So if there was a sequence, it would start away from home anyway. So my point is, and where I get zealous is, if we make an argument that we're meant to completely reach our home base, there is an an exhaustible greed, insatiable desire for that which is proximate, that which is near. And Jesus intentionally busts our attention away from what is near, not to neglect it, because he knows and understands that there are lost people in our vicinity. But his point is, it is always the far that suffers. And if we don't intentionally say we're going to leave home, we're going to go to the least and the last and the lost outside of our borders, outside of our culture, outside of gospel access, we default to not only a materialistic greed, but a spiritual greed. And we hoard the best resources. And honestly, guys, we hoard the best people. We don't send, we don't typically send our best and brightest theologians and communicators and pastors. We're like, all right, who doesn't work well in this church? Let's bless <laughs> Pakistan with Bob. He's not real bright. He's not real charismatic. He's not real studied. Not, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but that's the same issue. It's not just finances. It's people. We are selfish. We hoard our best people. We like you mentioned Adoniram Judson, or you go back to Henry Martin or Temple Gardner, or some of these giants. We need to send our best. Thank God the church sent the Apostle Paul, not some loser who couldn't disciple anybody in Antioch. So they shuffled him off to Cyprus. They sent their best. And that's the argument. So you can tell I'm passionate about it, not angry, but zealous that the house of God would be full because we have a distribution in equity. Wow, that's really that is not something that people. I really appreciate that. You know, when they think about missions, they're not thinking about distribution. They're only uh, thinking about how much we have to do and what is our percentage that we should do compared to what we need to be doing in our own backyard. You know, Dick, something you said reminds me of an article that uh, I read from Gary Corwin, who's actually going to be one of our upcoming guests. But this is what he says. Human nature is very predictable when it comes to setting priorities the things that affect us the most intimately, the welfare of our family and friends, and the welfare of our community and country are always going to receive first dibs on our attention. It takes a major adjustment to our mental and spiritual orientation for us to add a focus on geographically or culturally distant people living and dying without the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've got to be intentional. If we're going to get our people to care about the unreached, it doesn't just happen. It requires a great deal of inspiration and a great deal of intentionality. So thank you for reinforcing that, Dick. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, and one of the things that came to my mind is uh, uh, something that actually is is reminding people of something that is they think is truth. And it's a quote by that they attribute often many, many people, evangelicals in the West, um, to St. Francis of Assisi, uh, you know, if necessary, use words, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And of course, that's um, 
uh, a big kind of red herring that's put out there for the whole idea of a social gospel versus a preached gospel. And you've been talking about that really distinctively. L- let's expand on that just a little bit before we come back to the 42% of the world is a, a spiritual Sahara. Um, talk about that a little bit. Uh, and because I am concerned that we tend to twist these very clear um, passages of scripture. There are five of them that relate to mission that Jesus spoke after his uh, death and resurrection and before his ascension. Yeah, absolutely. I think the scriptures are so clear and none of them have been rescinded, including that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we are in danger of losing our prophetic voice. I think we have to insist on biblical grounds that there is Of course, a necessity on good deeds, but the priority is on proclamation because the saving power of the gospel is not resident in us and anything that we do or anything that we have to offer. Furthermore, the only thing that makes us different from Muslim or Buddhist or agnostic humanitarians is the very nature of the gospel as it is verbally proclaimed and believed on in faith. What's the difference between my English program or my CrossFit gym or my uh, literacy campaign and that of some atheist? It has to be the saving nature of the gospel. And so I think we do a lot of that because we have a Messiah complex. Number one, we feel good about ourselves. And number two, we um, we are not facing the grief or the rejection when we preach a gospel that is uncompromising and mutually exclusive. So some of that, I think, is our own fear. Some of that is wanting to be the solution, and we have to die to that. And we have to just say the Bible says there's a priority on proclamation. It is unavoidable in the scriptures, and we have to underline that and come back to it over and over again. Yeah, I heard a a simple phrase from John Piper that's really stuck with me. He says, no words, no gospel. Really yep. simple. It must be proclaimed. Yes, but it must be proclaimed. So, so Dick, you use some strong comparisons and disparities that illustrate really what is our broken understanding of missions. And Denny mentioned it already, but this is a quote from your chapter. 42% of the world wanders a spiritual Sahara. Christians spend next to nothing looking for them. So some might say this is a rather harsh way of evaluating missions. We think we're doing a pretty good job here. Would you unpack that metaphor a little bit for our listeners and help us gain a picture of the inequality of access that exists out there? Yeah. So the figures, of course, they're changing a little bit from year to year. But one of the last statistics I heard was that of all of the money given to global missions, around 3% goes to unreached peoples and unengaged peoples. So let me put it in this type of narrative form. Let's say you have two kids. You have two children, and they are equally loved. You love them both equally. And you're living in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And both your children gets get lost. One of them is lost in the house. And one of them got wandered outside, got kidnapped, taken to Algeria, bust down into the southern portion of the country, lost in the Sahara Desert. So you love both your children, one somewhere in your house, and someone 
has taken the other kid out in the middle, maybe the Boko Haram rebels, you know, up in the desert somewhere. Well, Bill Gates hears about this. He's an empathetic guy. And he says, you know what? Two lost children to this family in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm going to give them a million dollars so they can find both their children. You decide to take 970,000 of those dollars to search for the kid that's lost in your house and then only give $30,000 to mount a search party to send somebody to look for the kid that's lost in the Sahara. No one would think you were a wise parent. In fact, they would think you were foolish. But in so many practical ways, that's what the church has done. We've got lost people in our neighborhoods, our schools, our communities. Yeah, they're in our house. They're in our culture. They're in our language. They're in our nation. They're within reach of the thousands and thousands of churches and Christians that are resident in North America. And then we have 3.15 billion that are wandering the spiritual wastelands, never met a Christian, never seen a Bible, never had gospel access. And yet we're taking 97% of our resources and sending it, not just to America, but to countries that are fully staffed with indigenous churches, to places that are Christianized to a greater degree, in some cases, than the United States. We're putting 97% of our finances and our personnel into places that already have incredible Christian access, and only 3% of it or so into the areas that are so marginalized. So that is an essential mathematical, staggering statistic. And yet that's what we're doing. So that's what I'm trying to say, that yes, there's lost people right here near us, and there's lost people far from us, but the ones that are far from us are just getting pennies on our dollar or even on our personnel who are trying to reach out to them. Yeah. Well, Dick, before we kind of close this segment out, we're going to do another segment with you here coming up. Um, Let me ask you a little bit more about this whole idea. You know, we often, Matthew and I just participated in a conference and we heard this um, declaration that because of COVID, you know, the Internet is is the way that um, the gospel is going to go forward. And, of course, one person picked up and the next and the next and then the next. And pretty soon there was this feeling that you could get that the Internet, in fact, one person, well, the Internet is the key. That's how people will be evangelized worldwide. You're saying something very, very different here. And to me, there also seems to be a high degree of naivete in terms of access in places. And you've been in some of those places. Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. We're living it right now. So as I mentioned earlier, we live in Saudi Arabia, which is probably one of the more challenging contexts right now globally. And we've also served in Sudan and some other places. And I use media. So I would say media is a tool, but it is only a tool. And what it helps us do is find those who are interested, but nothing replaces the face-to-face, life-on-life, heart-language-to-heart-language, hard work of evangelism and discipleship. And so while I'm thankful for media, I also have a measured understanding of it. Because my reality and my experience is 
that you can't either microwave discipleship through technological means or isolate discipleship with people not being in Christian community and fellowship. There has to be a face-to-face, life-on-life, heart-language exchange of walking someone through the process of understanding who Christ is according to the gospel as laid out in the Bible and how that faith is lived out practically day by day within community as an evangelist that reaches out beyond your own little spheres. If we just stick to media, we're going to get isolated individuals who have no passion and no fire and no uh, mentoring in how the gospel breaks out beyond the barriers of what is safe. Media is nice. It's helpful in that it gives us, gives us access with some security. But the gospel is counter to security. The gospel, you cannot stay safe and you cannot stay secret. You have to open your mouth and you have to proclaim and face the persecution and the resistance that will come with that. You've got to bust out even of your affinity. You've got to bust out of your tribe. You've got to bust out of your nation. You have got to participate in taking the gospel to all the world. And you cannot do that through a proxy. You can't do that, number one, through media. Number two, you can't do that by paying someone to go and die for you. There has to be personal involvement. So I I have a measured view with you guys about media. Thankful for it. It's helping us. It's a blessing. It's not the answer. It is just one tool in our toolbox. Yeah, that's a great insight, Dick. I appreciate that. Robertson McCookin used to say, you know, Jesus didn't float around in a celestial bubble. He, he incarnated. He became one of us. And he, t- he talks about how important that is for missionaries. So thank you, Dick. It's been a real pleasure to have you. As Denny mentioned, we are going to have you on the next episode as well. So, folks, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. When Everything is Missions with Matthew Ellison and Denny Spinners. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Find the book, the podcast archive, and tons of free info online at whenevertheringismissions.com. This podcast is presented by 1615 Missions Coaching.